Welcome to Seek Justice, a podcast that takes a deep dive into the nuances of criminal justice. Good morning, Dennis. Good morning, Eric. How are you? Good. Today on episode 16 of our Seek Justice podcast, we are joined by an implementation scientist, Roger Shabilsky. In all of our episodes so far, we've talked about how difficult it is to go from theory to practice and, you know, where the rubber meets the road. Can we actually take these ideas and implement them? And every single time I want more, I want more science. I want more data. I want more testing this and that. And so I'm really looking forward to talking to Roger today. So uh, good morning, Roger. Uh, good morning, Eric. Welcome. Dennis, what's, what is your history with, with Roger so Roger and I go back several years where we have worked in states, as we know from uh, previous episodes of Delaware, uh, primarily Arizona as well, where we've been under the uh, auspices of the National Criminal Justice Reform Project, known by the acronym NCJRP, where the uh, Arnold Foundation, now called Arnold Ventures, has funded uh, our partners, uh, the National Criminal Justice Association, NCJA, and the National Governors Association, NGA. And uh, together we work with states' governor's offices and their uh, councils, their reform councils, their criminal justice councils, who are usually interested uh, in reducing recidivism and generally have been less than successful in getting that done. And it likely may not be because they don't have good uh, statutes or good policy. They often do. But more often than not, they have had trouble implementing. And so when uh, we go in, uh, I've got the type of training and work I do around models and framework about how to implement. But early on in the process, we always turn it over to uh, Roger and introduce him as an implementation scientist so that he can tell them, listen, this is why so much of this stuff doesn't work. And uh, he frames it. He trains on it. And then he helps uh, work as a team to guide that implementation so that we learn from uh, mistakes in other places, the successes in other places, while avoiding some of the mistakes. So I'm, I'm just thrilled to have uh, Roger on, and uh, I'm hopeful that this will be one of uh, two uh, interviews of Roger, because there's so much to get to. I know we won't uh, get it in this uh, first hour. So Roger, so good to have you here. Uh, thank you, Dennis. Um, welcome the opportunity to uh, be on the podcast. Uh, appreciate your most gracious introduction, and I'm um, looking forward to the discussion uh, today. And uh, perhaps then also, as you mentioned, a follow-up uh, in another podcast to be uh, recorded at some time in the future. Good. Well, let's let's kick it off here, Roger, by uh, just talking in general. Why is this so hard? I mean, wh- what is it that most of these jurisdictions are missing in general? Uh, that is the slip between the lip and the cup uh, so that they're not effective at uh, reducing uh, recidivism? Sure. So I think I'd like to start out just by trying to underscore how important implementation is. And what I've always talked about when I'm doing uh, presentations on this or trainings and talking to groups is to try and uh, express and have people appreciate the fact that implementation will make or break what you're trying to do. And it just simply isn't enough to be able to adopt, if you will, what works and to have good models, um, to be able to have all of the foundation in place, like you were alluding to earlier about policies and procedures and so forth. Uh, The fact is that when you actually try to 
move forward with things like implementation and real-world delivery. Uh, you're doing this in a very complex, sort of diverse, real-world setting that happens to, at least in my opinion, be uh, tremendously varied from one jurisdiction and from one kind of context to another. And the fact is, is that when we think about what it takes to be able to be successful with implementation, I think that we tend to not realize or not appreciate just how difficult that process turns out to be in the real world. Um, one of the things I think that is critically important to recognize is that there's a lack of appreciation on is that what tends to get in the way of solid implementation, what tends to derail implementation, if you will, isn't anything that is sort of like a, a strange, uh, unexpected occurrence that comes out of left field and blindsides you and Hence, you know, you, you wind up in a situation where you're deviating from what you were intending to do. The truth of the matter is, and this is borne out in the science, and we've known this for 40, 50 years, is that implementation, the, the problems that, that, that are likely to arise, and in fact, I'm going to say, will arise in every context, that they are routine and ordinary in character. They are the inherent sort of aspects of what goes on in trying to actually do real world do work in the real world and when we're talking about trying to implement things like re-entry reforms uh, we're essentially talking about change and implementing change in the real world is quite difficult in my opinion i think what appears to be very simple and straightforward sometimes um, often turns out to be much more complex than anticipated and we often underestimate if you will the number of steps involved, the coordination that needs to take place, uh, the number of separate decisions that have to be made, the number of uh, participants, stakeholders, uh, actors in the systems whose preferences have to be taken to account to be able to actually get something in place and working properly. And that recognition and being able to plan for it, if you will, and expect that you're going to run into problems is one of the key things that I think needs to be done to be successful. And that's not something that we traditionally do when we're talking about real world implementation in the context that, that we're discussing here. Um, one, I, I think part of what I want to say here too, in response to this is that um, there are a lot of different aspects to something like reentry reform and a lot of different dimensions of what actual implementation is going to look like or what practice is going to look like, uh, whether it's going to be we're implementing programs or we're in implementing new practices or trying to follow things like the risk, need, and responsivity principle. And all these different dimensions present very unique challenges for implementation. And what we, I think, tend to do, is, as, as I said earlier, is underestimate the complexity that's there, and then we don't have mechanisms in place to actually examine how well we're implementing so that we can monitor it on a regular ongoing basis, find problems before they become intractable, and then do something about them. So right. things like right. quality assurance you know, and, and continuous quality improvement can be buzzwords, but they're critically, critically important for being able to accomplish implementation in an effective and an efficient manner. You really have to expect that there are gonna be problems, plan for those, and put some kind of a mechanism into place to be able to identify them before, as I say, they become intractable. Right. So you can maximize what you're right. trying to do. Well, it sounds that's 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 uh, insightful uh, in general. It sounds to me then that you've got a team of people that are at the table in these reform efforts, 
and you mentioned uh, coordination uh, uh, several times, and uh, a lack of coordination then would be one of the reasons that they falter, and that coordination uh, equates to good uh, communication, but uh, planned and planful communication, meaning that you have to have a good decision-making process, like, uh, right, like, like, how do you, how do you take care of business? What are your meetings like? Uh, what issues are fair game? How do you uh, coordinate this? And then when you come together, you follow what essentially sounds to me like uh, rules of engagement. I mean, I want to talk a little bit about the layers you talk about, but isn't that the first thing is to understand, look, here's a lot of places that folks can make mistakes. They don't make good decisions together. They're not communicating well. They're not bringing stuff back to the full team. They're not documenting what's happening. There's no central repository of information. We get together, the agendas are chaotic as opposed to planful. Is that is that uh, the essence of a part of what you're saying here? Uh, yes, I think so, Dennis, very much so. So if I think about the concept of coordination, you know, it, it has what I'm gonna say is a very deceptively simple appearance, if you will. So apparently simple sequences of events in reality depend on very complex, if you will, chains of reciprocal actions. We underestimate the number and the unpredictability of decision points and what, what you're alluding to here in, in bringing people together to be able to actually um, identify, discuss, and, and then work on issues and make decisions that are going to move things forward. We, we don't do a good job of being able to navigate all that successfully. And this notion of, of, of actually being able to communicate properly and to coordinate everything that needs to be done becomes a very, very difficult kind of process to be able to manage, but it's absolutely key, as you're pointing out, that we do have plans in place in, in how to do this, and that there is some kind of, again, what I'm kind of was alluding to earlier, some kind of monitoring, uh, uh, um, if you will, sort of um, oversight of things here so that when meetings and in, in groups of people and stakeholders and folks that are actually going to do the work on the ground come together to be able to plan things out and then start to really make movements in terms of actions to move things forward. This has to be really, really well planned out and well coordinated. And there has to be oversight of it so that when things start to fall apart, I think as you were alluding to there, or there isn't proper communication or, you know, these meetings um, turn out to be something where we're not actually um, approaching it in a way, approaching sort of actions in a way that are, that are feasible and doable within a certain time frame or something of that nature. Uh, th those are the things that, as I said, sort of in the, the opening uh, remarks that I made, that, that um, we just we, we underestimate the complexity that's here and what needs to be done to do proper coordination and to do proper communication and to find those areas where we're not being successful or doing it in a sound manner so that we can take that corrective action to get it on track and done in the right way that we're expecting it to, to take place. So, Roger, how do we hold people accountable for what, you know, for if they're if they're showing results and how do we how do we go back and measure uh, if if team A did it better than team B? What was their secret sauce that made it work for them? Is that a thing that's understood? Well, um, I think there are, if I kind of think about how probably to best approach uh, the answer to your question there, I think that there are a, a number of, if you will, sort of activities or common elements of what would make up a quality assurance process. And a lot of that would have to do, I think, um, number one, with strong sort of management, if you will, of, of the entire process that's taken place. Because, well, again, in the context of reentry, is 
I'm sure you've all you've talked about in any of the podcasts that, that, that you've already put together. I mean, there, this is such a complex sort of uh, initiative to try and make change in, and it requires the involvement of so many different actors and so many, um, I'm going to say, issues or, or, or pieces of criminal justice, behavioral health, things like housing, things like employment, a, a lot of different uh, aspects of really, you know, sort of public policy in that jurisdiction have to come together to make this successful. And you've got to have something in, in place in a way that's going to, to, to oversee and monitor what's going on. And if you have a strong quality assurance process in place, there are a number of, I'm going to say, um, devices or techniques or activities that need to be there to be able to move this forward in the proper manner. Right, and right. one of those is is performance measurement. And that can be sort of a buzzword again, but uh, one of the things that has to be done when movement starts to go forward is that there has to be some mechanism in place to actually measure uh, sort of what I think are the key aspects of what's taken place. Um, if you will, a, a sort of a viable quality assurance plan really needs to provide the organization's management and staff with a systematic and I'll say objective way to gauge progress towards the implementation of what you're trying to do. And, and that's going to be right. evidence-based, embedded in evidence-based practice. So developing and monitoring, if you will, like a small number of indicators that will shed light on the degree to which those evidence-based practices are being implemented as planned. Can you give me an example of one of those indicators? Do you have anything concrete that you can... Sure. So I think uh, when we talk about um, the reentry context and we know how important it is to be able to align and adhere to the principles of risk need and responsivity. I think one of the key performance measures that has to be put into place is something that's going to give you an idea about the intensity of services and something that might reflect, for example, the number of contacts that a client has with the justice system professional, looking at things like dosage of interventions and ensuring that the intensity of services and the dosage of interventions correspond to the overall risk level of the individual and to the needs of that individual. Um, so that's that's one example. I'm not an expert in this field. Can you describe what dosage of interventions means? Is just how? Uh, I mean, I can sort of have, right. sort of have so an idea, but can you I, put I, that into layman's terms? Yeah. So I, I think one of the the, the predicates here and. Uh, Dennis can weigh on this, weigh in on this, and and, and he's an expert in this area more so than I am. But one of the, the primary things that has to be followed here is that high risk cases. You, you must do some type of, of risk assessment that's validly administered, and high risk cases should receive the highest level of supervision contacts mm -hmm. and the greatest intensity of of intervention services if we're talking about hours or things of that nature, and that's what I'm referring to by dosage. Okay. So we know that high-risk cases need to have that highest level of contacts and intervention, and I'm going to also argue on the other end of the spectrum, those low-risk cases, they obviously should, should receive the opposite, the, the fewest number of contacts and the, the, the lowest dosage of intervention, right. and we need to make sure that we're adhering to that. And in fact, if we want to be efficient with the expenditure of our resources, um, you really have to focus on high and moderate risk cases to be able to reduce recidivism uh, because the, you're just not going to accomplish anything with low risk people. And in fact, you can do more harm than good by so, uh, providing yeah, high levels of supervision or, or, or service to folks that have low risk and low needs. So that's that's actually a, a, a good example of the complexity that you, you mentioned several times in that 
uh, we work together in several states, and you'll recognize which state I'm talking about here, where the Department of Corrections is expected to administer a risk need assessment instrument in a timely manner so that before the prisoner is moved from the prisoner where the prison where they've been living for a while to a release center where they're going to get out, that risk assessment instrument has been applied. It's in the file. People know what the risk level is. They know why the risk level is high, moderate, uh, whatever. And in order then for the second agency, which may be a community-based agency, to go to the new location of the reentry center and interview the person with information in hand about their level of risk and also the type of criminogenic needs they have, whether that's criminal thinking, association uh, with uh, antisocial peers, et cetera, et cetera. Without that information, things won't work. So the complexity is, is agency A going to do the five things that it takes? Uh, administer the risk assessment instrument, score it, put it in the file, communicate it, move the prisoner in a timely manner, introduce the prisoner, get the prisoner oriented to the new location. Now you've got a second agency involved. Third agency, which is a uh, community-based agency, needs to come in, have an appointment and say, okay, you're going to be getting out of prison in three months. Let's talk about what you've got going on. In order for that to work, Agency A, the Department of Corrections, Agency B, the Reentry Center, and Agency C all have to be on the same page at the same time. If that doesn't happen, Agency B says, who is this guy you're sending to me? I don't know who he is. Let's say there's nothing in the file. There's no record of the uh, risk instrument. There's just a, a, he's high risk. Well, why is he high risk? The Agency C comes in and says, I don't have anything in my file. I'm coming in cold. If this yeah. is the way that it happens, it's not going to work. And so you, this happens, let's say this falters, and this is real-life example, and then you bring the agencies together, and they don't want to talk about it, or they're feeling like they're being um, – the accountability that you want to hold them to is somehow a negative thing, and they're right. offended. And, they, you know, and the fact is they didn't do what they said they were going to do, and it's got to be talked about. And so we get into this issue of your opening then – of coordination means good communication, and you've got to have a good decision-making process. And at the end of the day, you've got to write everything down. You've got to write it yeah. down. You've got to share it so that everybody's clear about what's supposed to happen. Then you've got to be clear about what really happened. Then you have to have an open dialogue to be able to talk between what you expected and what actually happened. And that's where the, the uh, Eric's good question about accountability comes into place. The fact is we need to hold each other accountable in these systems. A consultant, you and I, can come in and we facilitate. We don't yeah. make decisions for them. We push them in the right direction. We tell them what the science is. But at the end of the day, they've got to have the leadership, both perhaps political leadership and administrative leadership, you know, to be able to make sure that this thing can be managed. Because you talked about good management, right? I mean, that that yeah. that all that, that all makes sense, right? Uh, so I, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, what, what you're what you're alluding to there, and I think what absolutely has to be in place is that there, there it, it's critical that there's a management model that is consistent, if you will, with the notion of evidence. So it, it, you've got to have a, 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 and a climate that is established within that organization. Uh, in the example you're, you're talking about, as we're talking about um, three different, let's say, organizations that are there uh, for, for the sake of argument. You've got the DOC itself, you've got the reentry center, and then you've got a community service provider, so to speak. And all of those organizations have to have a management model that is 
in fact, consistent with the values that are um, sort of embedded in evidence-based practice. And, and that means that you've got to have uh, this climate and this culture that is going to facilitate accountability, transparency, the notion of measuring performance. And it's not to hold people, um, not to place people in a position where it's like, oh, we caught you, you're doing something wrong. This has to be built on a, the, the values of collaboration, trust, transparency, and the notion of we're going to be, um, again, these are buzzwords, but they're so important and so true. This is going to be a learning organization and a learning system where we're focused on continuous quality improvement. So no one's going to master um, you know, what we're trying to do right off the bat. And to be able to have uh, th this culture and the leadership that, that, that facilitates and helps build that culture that we do need to coordinate, we do need to communicate, we need to measure what's happening here and monitor what's happening, not for the sake of being able to say, well, you're doing something wrong here, but to be able to bring everybody to a place where we can make the improvements that need to be made. And I think this is absolutely critical. And, and leadership's role in this, I think, is absolutely critical. Um, and leaders from these organizations at the highest level can't just be providing lip service or saying, oh, I'm behind you 100% and I'll go forward and do beautiful things. They've got to be intimately involved in modeling the proper culture and climate, supporting it, and dealing with what in implementation science is talked about as being the adaptive challenges that are always going to emerge when you're talking about managing change like we are in the context of reentry reform and, and putting new reentry practices into place. And adaptive challenges are those kinds of, let's say, problems and challenges that are going to emerge during the course of change and, and, and implementation that are not able to be solved, if you will, by an authority figure or by edict. They have things to do, they're related to things like changes in authority, changes in your work role, changes in the way that you're actually, um, let's say, collaborating and working with other individuals and other organizations and being able to manage that change is so important and leadership has to be involved in modeling the kind of behaviors and the processes and the culture and climate that you need to be in place that need to be in place for, in order to be successful. Can you give me some examples of some successes, some people that have done this really well that uh, others could look at to, to try and replicate or is it not that clear cut? Well, I, the way I would answer that, I think if I if I were to look at uh, jurisdictions across the U.S., I think one of one of the where I would point for successes because this is this is a challenge and a process, but but those places where those jurisdictions where quality assurance has been put into place in a in a real and not lip service manner, and where the leadership of that those particular organizations or, or the leaders in criminal justice in that jurisdiction are, as I was saying earlier, um, truly, truly engaged in the changes that need to take place. So I, I always talk about implementation as being change management, and you have to look at that across the dimensions of change by practitioners, human service professionals, change within organizational settings, climates, and cultures, and then change at the highest level of leadership where your agency directors, uh, uh, highest levels of leadership that are involved in a reentry effort, for example, are actively involved in what's going on on a regular ongoing basis and 
demonstrate that support on a continual basis. Now, there are, in my opinion, probably a handful of states where you're seeing work like this taking place. And what's most important, I think, is that you see a commitment of and an, and an investment in, of resources in the notion of quality assurance and building that into sort of the infrastructure and the management model that is being used in that jurisdiction. Um, I'm so last, a little last, hesitant. Yeah, go ahead, Des. Yeah, last week, uh, we interviewed Mark uh, Maurer from the Sentencing Project, and we discussed this uh, New York City, Brooklyn-based uh, prosecutorial diversion program, uh, and the prosecutor led the charge. Very instituted justice was the uh, consulting or technical assistance and training provider. And it is a good example, I think, uh, one which we've mentioned of uh, some of the things that you've said. One, the prosecutor himself was at the table, constantly engaged, communicating, looking at the data. And what they discovered after initial implementation was that while they were uh, enrolling people that looked fairly serious, who appeared to otherwise uh, be bound for prison and therefore would be considered a diversion from prison, that the numbers of, of people going to prison did not change. And so they knew that they had to improve it. They were looking inward toward a level of accountability and saying, well, our enrollment criteria look sound, but our numbers aren't changing. Therefore, we have to tighten it up. What I'm aware of through the work that uh, Vera was doing uh, in Brooklyn at the time is that they tightened up the eligibility criteria. They made it a tougher. They made it clear that people who had uh, in, enrolled in the program really had to be more serious rather than less serious. And when they saw the numbers of people going to prison start to decline, that's when they said, we think we have a model here that's starting to make sense. And then they could move toward uh, monitoring and evaluation. It seems to me that that's always the first step that people uh, you know, uh, mess up with, which is, are they actually getting the right people in the program, the people they intended to get in? Because if you don't get that right, they might be wildly successful, but if they're all low risk or they wouldn't have gone to prison and they're not true diversions, nothing's going to work afterwards. And so I think it's that that uh, understanding from the prosecutor who would say at these meetings, I'm sure we have a lot to learn. We have to learn together. We're going to try. We'll probably fail. We'll try and try again until we get it right. And they finally got it right. And their data ended up showing that they did have a positive impact on people who otherwise uh, would have uh, gone to prison. So I think that's that's an example, uh, Eric. Thank you. So the, the the other thing that you've touched on here is this uh, multiple layers, and you've you've you you mentioned several of them. I'm keeping a little bit of a list here. First of all, you start with a reform that could be uh, edict from the governor. It could be a statute from the legislature. Um, there's a uh, that's an issue, and then the spirit at which that reform is accepted and uh, the culture, as you say, of change uh, has to be led by people high up in the agency. And in Louisiana, where we work together, a good example where the legislature worked collaboratively uh, with Governor John Bell Edwards to pass justice uh, reinvestment reform. They agreed on what the reforms would be. They passed legislation. The head of the Department of Corrections there, Jimmy LeBlanc, has spoken uh, very uh, passionately and repeatedly everywhere he goes that this is a new day and they move from there to another layer and they're expected then to uh, rewrite policy. That is, all right, we have a uh, an edict uh, driven by legislative reform. Now we have to be clear, what will the Department of Corrections do? What's the policy? And then mm -hmm. how do we implement that policy? That is procedures, who does what when? Then based on who does what when, we have to make certain that people are trained 
and understand what they're supposed to do. They understand the fundamentals of what goes behind this uh, new law. In this case, the evidence best practices to improve reentry. And then beyond training, you have to make certain that someone is monitoring those procedures. The supervisors are clear. And then you have to determine whether or not things are being implemented the way they're supposed to be. And that's quality assurance. So you've got six layers right there, right? And all yep. of those are, are, are complicated. They're not linear because they involve many different agencies, Department of Corrections, the parole board, community groups, people running the prisons, intake systems within the prisons, et cetera. So these layers, it's its like a rubric's cube, right? I mean, it's just very, very complex. Uh, it, 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 you agree with that? Uh, no, absolutely. And I mean, that's what I was sort of alluding to um, earlier in the discussion about um, the fact that we underestimate the complexities here. When I, when I listen to you describe, you know, the characteristics of what we're talking about, um, it, it's, it, it's, it's almost like impossible to sort of conceptualize and, and grasp this um, in a way that really represents how complex it is. Now, I'm not, not suggesting that that's not possible, but it, it just underscores the reality that we tend to underestimate just how difficult and how many moving pieces there are to this and how important it is to, if you will, consider what the organizational machinery is for putting this into place. So I think another comment I wanted to make here, and it's something that you just mentioned, Dennis, when you, when you talk about procedures, um, I, so far I've been kind of harping on and, and trying just to really emphasize the point about how important high-level leadership is in this. But when you start to get down to this notion of following procedure, um, out there in the real world on the streets, in, in, in this real-world activity that you're trying to put into place, um, mid-level management, first-line supervisors become so important to not only buy into what we're trying to do and commit to it, but to play that important role in helping to ensure that those procedures are being followed appropriately and to ensure that the folks that are on the ground at the street level carrying out this work are indeed following the procedures in the way that they were intended to be followed. Right, um, right. So this, this middle management, these first-line supervisors are so critical to successful implementation. Right. And they've got to be on board, and they've got to know exactly what needs to happen, and they have to have responsibility for and be held accountable for um, making sure that those procedures are followed um, by staff that are doing the work on the street. Right, and we're what we're trying to do, and you talk about this in your training, and I'm going to uh, ask you to... Uh, uh, speak a little bit about this issue of fidelity and what it means and how you can get that that point across. But here you have a set of policies and procedures. So you've gone into that level of, of specificity and the people that are responsible to implement the procedures, what they're supposed to do, fill out the forms, interview people, what happens in the interview, what skills do they use in the interview? Are they trained to do a better job at interviewing people and helping motivate them and direct them? You're already in another three or four layers. And the line supervisor has to be able to understand what the model is and also understand at the, at the gut level how this uh, parole agent or correctional officer, how that interaction is taking place to help enthuse the participant to be better, to actually change his or her life. So how do you, how do you get that point across about fidelity, you you when you do your training, how do you how do you what analogy do you use so that that hits home with people? Well, um, I think I would respond to that with with 
sort of two observations or comments that, that I that I do use in, in the trainings and when I talk to people about this. And uh, the first is just to make clear what the concept of fidelity really is. Uh, so I've, I've tried to actually talk about that in, in layman's terms, though, you know, it, it has special meaning in research and evaluation and in, in, in implementation. But I've always sort of used this example where um, I look back to uh, my adolescence and in our living room at home, we had a piece of furniture, um, quite large, uh, probably the size of a, a credenza or uh, not certain exactly what, what how to describe it, but uh, is, is a piece of furniture that, that came up to about your waist was maybe about five or six feet long. And inside of it, it had uh, <laughs> what we've lost today, uh, something called a record player and uh, it had a radio in there. Nice. And on the face of that piece of furniture, there were these huge plastic letters that said high fidelity. And what that meant is that when you were listening to those records or you were listening to that music on the radio, it was very much like if you were standing in front of the band or the orchestra in real life, that that music as it was presented through that record and through that radio um, sounded as you will and aligned with uh, what it would sound like if you were actually standing in front of that band or orchestra. And that concept of actually adhering to or matching in real life what you're expecting to do or what the model says you should be doing that's what the concept of fidelity is all about well what we and, do know yeah go ahead well and in this case you know to to to, to bring it to a example again real life example is that you have in the case of reentry, you and i use a, a model uh, developed by the center for justice innovation called the uh, state uh, planning for prisoner reentry framework which goes into a great deal about the evidence-based practices from the point of intake in prison to the point of uh, uh, successful uh, graduation from parole at the back end, a pile of different things, 26 different uh, policy areas. So we have a model, and so that model is sort of like what you hear coming out of the high-fidelity instrument. Uh, it's, it's, it's shown to work in a couple of different states, Michigan, which uh, Eric and I have talked about a great deal, and, and I've published mm -hmm. quite a few things about. And now we go into another jurisdiction, let's say Arizona or Delaware or Louisiana. We say, okay, so you you hear the sound coming out of the high-fidelity uh, record player, and now your job is to put together an orchestra who has the same or similar instruments, and you have the music in front of you. We want you to sound like this exactly. sounds. And in order to do this, we have not three of you because it's not a, a trio. We don't have four of you. It's not a quartet. We have an orchestra. There's 35 yeah. of you, and there is a brass section, and there is a string section, and there is a horn section. Each of those sections may be different agencies. In order for it to be harmonious and in order for it to have high fidelity, everybody's reading, of course, from what? the same set of music they're they're if yes. it's in a church let's say it's a it's an orchestra in a church they're reading from the same hymn book right as that right. analogy goes nice that's complicated and you have to have a conductor and that conductor has to be trained right and so this is when you talk about the complexity and you use this analogy which i love and you really can see eric when when roger's doing these uh, trainings that when he says this there's lights that go off everywhere People, people start to, to get that, right? You know, and so, no. go ahead, Roger. 
Yeah. Well, no, I, 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 wanna, I just wanted to comment on, on the way you described it, too, because in essence, yeah, you, ha you have that sheet of music, you have that script, and you know if you follow that script, and you, you, you're all on that same sheet of music and you play it properly, it's going to turn out the way you want it to turn out. Now, when you use this example or the analogy of that orchestra, you have to make sure that you have an orchestra that is fitted with the proper instruments, the proper tools, and that can be a breakdown, but that's essential to be able to, to, to follow that music, to follow that script, to play that music in the proper way. And as you said, you've got to have a conductor. You've got to have somebody that is leading this and that is making sure that everyone is doing this in the coordinated manner, the way a conductor actually achieves the playing of that, 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 that music by an orchestra with so many different instruments and so many different pieces that have to be coordinated and, and come together properly. And, and I just think the way that you described it is spot on, but, but, but we don't always, when you, when you look at that script and the music that has to be followed, I think we don't always have a situation where all the right instruments or all the proper tools are in place in an adequate sort of, um, quantity and quality that's going to be needed to be successful and then even if you do there are all these places where breakdowns can take place but the right. way you described it i think is so spot on yeah so you're you're a conductor and you hear that the uh the string section comes in late and so you you you, you tap your baton on your music stand and you say wait 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 you're coming in late right or Correct. uh and and while we stop you know uh over there in the uh horn section uh, well, not a horn because a horn's not going to be out of tune. But let's say in the string section, I also heard that somebody's out of tune. You don't have you, yeah. you're a little bit out of tune. So in this analogy, let's say in the state that I mentioned earlier, where the Department of Corrections has got to do a risk need assessment, that risk need assessment has to be done in a timely manner. It can't be late. It's got to come in on time and it's got to be in tune, meaning it's got to be right. And yeah. if someone says in the orchestra, they say, well, well, wait a minute, I'm supposed to come in now my music sheet is missing a page. Mm -hmm. I don't know what I'm supposed to play. That the analogy is, well, we did a risk need assessment instrument, but we don't have the information in the file, right? Yeah. And it's yeah. it's this, and, and so this tapping on the music stand is the role of a facilitator to say, look, my job is to help you become harmonious. But look, mm -hmm. you're over there in the string section and there's a lead string instrument. You got to bring your section into tune. And the same with the brass yeah. section, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's where all of this, this stuff comes into place. And the importance, as Rogers mentioned, of not just the policy, which is the, the music sheet, perhaps, but the procedures of when you come in, at what tone do you come in? Because let's say somebody's right, but tap, tap, tap on the music stand and say, look, that uh, uh, oboe came in much too hard, much too loud. There was a pause there. You need to come in much slower, much more mellower. You got the right instrument. You got the right music. You got the wrong tone. That tone may be akin to you go and you interview someone and you say, don't look them in the eyes. It's a former prisoner. You treat them rudely. You don't have the right tone. All these things come into play if you want to reach the high fidelity measures that, that Roger's analogy, I think, points to uh, uh, very well. Eric, does this make yeah. sense to you as a non-criminal justice? This is a beautiful metaphor. I, <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So, you know, one, one thing I want to mention here, too, that, that, that I think um, is quite apparent when you, when you think of this orchestra kind of analogy and, and so forth, that if, if you bring the musicians and that conductor together for the first time and lay out that music and see what happens, 
it's probably not going to sound all that great. And in fact, that there are going to have to be multiple sort of iterations and practices, if you will, to get this right and to get it prime time to a place where now you're able to present this in that large auditorium to the full audience and so forth. And the reason that I'm saying that is that we can't expect that things are going to go right, if you will, and be perfect right out the gate. And it's going to take time to be able to do this tapping of the baton, getting the tone right, getting the, the, the tuning right, getting all that stuff to be in a place where we're going to be successful and have that high fidelity implementation. And, and that takes time and an investment of, of not only time, but, but resources and expertise. Right. You can't assume it's right. going to happen right off the bat. Well, and, and, and Roger, I can cue you up for a rant uh, because uh, I have uh, ranted on this podcast several times about partly precisely what you're saying. And that is that you have to be, mindful that it takes time you have to have the right resources to be able to do it training resources that's not free yeah. the ability to yeah. supervise people in a different way written policies procedures require training monitoring if you're going to do quality assurance somebody has to monitor the quality report on it dialogue about it etc and yet what happens again and again is that you have uh, federal funding sources or philanthropic funding sources, and I mentioned a, a couple on the show before, Bureau of Justice Assistance, Bureau of Justice uh, Services, for example, they will say, we want to give you money for a program, but you have to do an experimental research design in the first three years, and that experimental research design has a control group and a treatment group, and you need to get it right to be able to show That's statistical it. relevance, and they have it all wrong. It takes a long time to be able to get to the point where you should be willing to deny services to a, a control group. And so talk about that a little bit, because I'd, I'd, I'd like to get you excited. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, I mean, I completely agree. I think that there is a um, this kind of r rush to judgment oftentimes about programs and, 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 and reform efforts, when in fact, you know, doing premature outcome evaluation and, 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 and premature sort of emphasis on this rigorous looking at impacts. Um, nothing could be worse in my mind because you have to have a, a, a stable sort of program or strategy that has been put into place that has worked out the problems, that's worked out the kinks, that you actually know what you're looking at here to be able to get to that point where you can do what I'm going to call summative evaluation, which is sort of the final report card for it. And this notion that we need to be uh, engaging in things like randomized controlled trials early on or something of that nature, just uh, it, the likelihood that you're going to find success, I think, is is quite low and you can get into this position where you're actually having a, a good concept and a good idea be devalued because you're not finding the findings or the, the results that you, you think you should find. But the problem here is that number one, you're still in this notion of, of working out the kinks and, and, and getting to a point of proper implementation and premature evaluation of outcomes is, is just not helpful. Right. So well, I always talk about, let me just say quickly, so I always talk about there needs to be formative evaluation work that takes place first. That's what we're talking about in terms of like quality assurance and continuous quality improvement. And after formative work takes place and you've got a stable program that's been implemented with high fidelity, now we can talk about a summative evaluation approach. Um, I, there, uh, I've stolen this quote, but I use it all the time. The notion of formative evaluation and summative evaluation, when you think about those two approaches in contrast to one another. So when the cook tastes the soup, that's formative evaluation. And when the guests 
taste the soup, that's summative evaluation. And it's premature to focus on summative evaluation until you do that formative work, knowing how challenging implementation in real world, complex, highly diverse settings really is. It's essential to engage in that work up front. Well, and another real world example is that, you know, we've worked in states and, and one in particular where, um, you know, they, they decided because their funding was coming from a federal agency that they were going to do an experimental research design long before the soup was ready, long before the, the, the cake came right. out of the oven, long before that orchestra was ready for prime time, to say the least. Right. But let's say right. that in that state that they took the three or four years to do the formation, the formative uh, work that needs to be done, the policies are in place, which many states will write policy and not implement them. Louisiana, mm -hmm. for example, we worked for over a year on a, a very broad but uh, detailed policy. And as far as I know, it's never been signed let alone the procedures that need to follow that. So in this case of the state, you've got good uh, philosophical leadership. You've got a statute. You've got uh, very good leadership from the head of the Department of Corrections. But when it comes down to the administrative role of some of the underlings of that uh, secretary who are in charge of policy and procedure and training, they start to fall apart. But let's say in this example that the state does do good policy, good procedure, does an area of reform get the moderate to high-risk prisoners identified, move them uh, closer to their home, has community agencies coming in and doing the interviews, but fails to provide any more resources for housing. There isn't enough. For employment and employability programs, there isn't enough. For transportation, mm -hmm. there isn't enough. Yet they're willing to go to an experimental research design before they have enough resources. And when it shows that it doesn't work, they say, well, I guess the model doesn't work. No, I guess the model wasn't finished. The whole Correct. point of the formative work in reentry is to convince the legislators who are holding these purse strings that in the experiment that we're working with a dozen people, 30 people, 60 people, some cohort of people, when we could provide some additional resource along with all of those other steps of the policy procedure, the training, et cetera, et cetera, and we threw additional resources that we can affect change. Now, when we do that, we're ready for more experimental research, right? I mean, that is yeah, the thing absolutely. that's missing everyone. And nobody wants yeah. to fund it. The foundations don't yeah. want to fund services. BJA doesn't want to fund services. They say, no, we want you to fund, you know, the teamwork and the, and the formation of the model and the, the, the valuation. All that's great. All that's important. But what about the services? If you don't have enough housing for people in New Orleans, for example, where you don't have enough housing for, for people that are crime free and without any record, let alone the folks that aren't. And, and if you've got a prior felony record, you're not going to be able to get into so much of the housing. If they don't address that, they can do all the work in the world prior to release. And if a person is homeless and they can't work, they can't report to work they're homeless, they're going to have a hard time with their medication. They've got to put money into resources. Your thoughts, Roger? Uh, absolutely. And, and just from a logical standpoint, you know, it, this comes back to this notion also of like premature outcome evaluation and so forth. But if you if you logically look at what your expectations are and what it takes to actually reduce recidivism, all of the things that you're mentioning there that have to do with things like housing, employment, um, medication for individuals who need it, health care, all these things. Why would you think that you're actually going to reduce recidivism or find through this rigorous outcome research that you're getting the outcomes, the results that you're expecting. Why would you like logically or plausibly think that that's going to happen if these critical pieces are not in place? Like you're saying, Dennis, there's no place for someone to live. There's no uh, ability to 
have meaningful work. There's no ability for people to get health care and have, have, have medication and things that are needed to be successful in the community. Why would you logically think you're going to get to the recidivism reduction outcomes when those things are missing? Um, it's, it's, yes. it's, it's ludicrous to me to, 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 yes. to think that. So. And it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's Einstein's point about the definition of insanity doing the same thing again and again. In this case, going back to your original uh, opening about the complexity and having the players at the table being part of a learning organization, you know, understanding that it's not just the Department of Corrections and the reentry center and the community-based service providers. There's also state agencies that are running the housing funding. There's local housing authorities that have to be at the table. There's Department of Labor money coming from the feds to the state. There's state bureaucracies that run that. There's local agencies that run that. If you are a former prisoner and you walk into an employment center and they're not ready for your level of need and for mm-hmm. your uh, uh, history of non-employment, and you are turned away or you feel ridiculed, that is going to damage the fidelity of the of the outcome. It's going to not sound good. It's not going to be harmonious. And you have to have all those players there. And so when you consider the teamwork that has to take place, we get into this point you made early on in the opening about complexity. One of the things I'd, I'd like to do, and this cues us up for our, our second show uh, podcast on this, a point with you, Roger, is to prepare mm-hmm. and think about so when these people are at the table, when they have a team of people that are going to steer it, what does that body need to look like? And what are the rules of engagement they need to have more specifically? What should that look like? And I think what we can do in the, uh, uh, in the second uh, episode here is, is, is get into uh, lessons learned and, and you know, talking to you know, you know, the five most important things that folks have got to be able to think about, because I think one of the things that, that we see is that our listeners are interested in very concrete things that they can walk away with. Uh, and so we, we laid the underpinnings of that here in the next podcast. We can we can move to um, uh, getting into those specifics. That would be a wonderful follow up, I think, to be able to go to delve into those issues. So absolutely. Dennis. OK, well, thank you very much, Roger and Dennis. This has been fascinating and I look forward to talking with you guys in the future. Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks, Roger. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've just heard, you can support us by telling a friend or sharing us on social media. All of our episodes can be found on our website, seekjustice.fm. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we can be reached at seekjusticefm at gmail.com or via our Twitter account at seekjusticefm. See you next week.